y'all. This is VA and Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi. And we're so glad you're here to hear us talk about our badass human who also happened to be a scientist. And it's BS week. So this is the week when we talk about someone who may or may not have been a BA, but there is some definitely BS kind of science or something going on with our focus this week. And like we, we mentioned this last week, but this one's going to be vastly different from our last BS episode. Yeah. And I think we're all thrilled about that. Yes. Yes. Cause it was just the worst. It was. Yeah. I mean, important to cover, but it was not like, it was not a fun episode in any way, no. shape or form. Today should be very interesting and less depressing. So weekly business. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at BA and Science. Um, and as usual, we're posting uh, pics there. We're posting source info there for this episode, whatever. You can email us at BA and Science at Gmail if you've got something we need to know or you have questions or you have suggestions, whatever. That's where that should go. Also, wherever you listen, remember to rate and review or favorite or like or whatever your platform wants you to do so that they know that you like us because then other people can find us too. So I think, I think that's all. I think I covered it all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into addendums. Now, I do not have any addendums this week. Do you have any? I don't other than I need to say, give mom a shout out because she guessed this week's episode correctly. Awesome. Cause she, I saw um, both texts she sent. I don't know if I read them both, but um, she also guessed someone else who had to do with both the topic and kind of some BS. So who knew there were two dudes that fit into the category of clues that we gave? Cause I did not know. Yeah, yeah. that was neat. So yeah, so I guess it's just kind of going to be an ordinary week since there's no other interesting agenda. So I guess we'll just take a quick break and then we'll get right into the bio, which I get to do this week. Yeah. So as I just mentioned, I have the bio for BA this week, and it was tough finding a lot of info on this guy. I want to shout out Google Translate real quick because I used it on a 19-page journal article that was all in Portuguese for some major source material, uh, which we'll mention when we talk about sources at the end. But I definitely wanted to say that, oh, like I'm gonna say a third of what I got came from an article that I translated with Google Translate. So that was what I spent my week on. And it was, it's totally gonna be worth it. It's totally gonna be worth it because, well, we'll see. So Britta, give us our quote and tell us who our, who our guy is this week. And then we'll get into some of his life and some of his BS. All right. And when we designate a person to deal with an issue, blinders should not be placed on him. The scientist is not dumb. Not having blinders, not only will you do what you are asked to do, but will do other interesting things. And our BA this week is Warwick Estevan Kerr. Warwick Estevan Kerr. So I have to be honest. I was kind of surprised at how interesting this guy's life was once I started to get into it. Cause on the surface, I, I looked up his Wikipedia cause that's kind of where I start my research. And I was like, well, this is going to be a short week for me. Hope Brenna can find something, but I've actually got some cool stuff to cover. So let's begin. And I'm going to call him W that's what I'm calling him. So let's begin All with right. W. He was born in 1922 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. His family was originally from Scotland, hence the last name of Kerr. 
um, but he went to school in Sao Paulo and eventually graduated as an agricultural engineer. He specialized in genetics and worked as an entomologist, which, as some of you may or may not know, is a bug scientist, mm -hmm. which is going to be important later. So remember that. He did his postdoc research at UC Davis and Columbia in New York, and he was researching. Oh. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, I found that to be interesting. Yeah. He was researching fruit flies and wrote a paper called Experimental Studies of the Distribution of Gene Frequencies in Very Small Populations of Drosophila melanogaster, which, as you have heard me say before, I feel like he could have named it something more interesting, but that does tell you exactly what it was about. He was working on <laughs> genetics stuff with bugs. So... Again, going to be important later. So he published this paper around 1954, and it was one of the first to deal with the field of genetic statistics, which I'm not going to talk about because it's not at all relevant to where we're headed today. But what is relevant is that research paper is one of a total of 620 that he wrote in his 60-year career, which is... Oh my gosh. Yes, it is a lot, a freaking lot. A lot. Yeah. He basically established the study of genetics in Brazil, essentially. And I'm not, again, I'm not going to go into all of the science-y stuff because Brennan's going to get into that, but I have to like, like, I'm, pro I'm probably not as much the genetic stuff because that was, that became very secondary in his life, which we'll kind of get into. So he was the director of the National Institute of Amazonia Research and taught at the University of Sao Paulo. Then he worked at another university, and I'm going to go ahead and try to pronounce it. And I know that Portuguese is similar to Spanish, but I'm not, I'm not going to do very well with this. The Universidade Estadual do Maranhão. Okay. So if any of you are familiar with that particular university, I'm sorry for butchering the name. But at that place, he established their department of biology and he was dean of the university. So kind of like a big deal guy there. He was also a member of the Brazilian Academy of Sciences, which is important to part of my story, the Third World Academy of Science and the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which all of that's a big deal. W was a very respected, very well-known scientist and his biographical information kind of ends there. Like, I don't have, like, I don't know about his family life. I don't know about his upbringing. I don't know anything. There wasn't anything on it in any of the sources that I could find. And a lot of the sources were in Portuguese. Right. And I didn't know, like, I, I didn't, I'm sorry, guys. I simply don't have time to get 27 articles and translate all of them to see if any of them have good information. I apologize. But even with that small amount, like you might be wondering, why are we talking about a nice guy who lived a quiet life and was a good scientist? Because this is a BS. This isn't just a BA episode. This is a BS episode. Mm -hmm. So our buddy W is the guy that brought us killer bees. Yes. Which should not be what we call them. That's pretty much what I'm going to talk about my entire segment. I did not also try to get a whole bunch of articles in a language I couldn't read. So I can barely tell you anything about a lot of the science, but we're going to talk about bees. That's good because bees are a big deal. So here's, cause I, cause I figured that you were going to go into the detail about bees, but there is a little bit that I can talk about because it's relevant to kind of what happened to him because 
he did have some drama in his life. So W had grown up in Brazil, as I mentioned, and he was well aware of the fact that many poor indigenous hunters and farmers supplemented their family's diets with honey from the native bees, which were stingless. So that's cool. But they were well, also, they also like, made profit from it too. Right. And they could also sell it. So right. it was kind of like a little industry, but it, they weren't, they weren't big into it because there were also problems with pollination and the bees, they had imported some bees from Portugal to try to help, but the bees were like, it is too hot here. I'm just going to die. And so they didn't do a very good job there. So in the 1950s, W got some bees from Africa because he wanted to breed a tropics adapted bee. And the government said, yeah, go for it. That'd be totally great. His goal was to improve the lot of these farmers by bumping up honey production with more efficient bees, essentially. And he did and Brazil needed more pollination, like agriculture was on the rise. So, I mean, in case you didn't know, bees are really important for pollination and like, you know, food growing and stuff. Yeah. Y'all. The reason that we can kind of eat anything is because bees, they're really important. He did eventually manage to have a hybrid bee, but the circumstances around how that happened are a bit murky. And Brenda's going to go into most of them. Mm-hmm. But there are two situations that kind of collided that kind of made poor W infamous for a while. Mm-hmm. Because, because everything was going great. He was doing his research. He was experimenting. He was going to make these bees. So accidentally, and truly accidentally, some of the bees got out mm-hmm. into the wild. Yeah. And the, sw- the, the swarms did. And I got, I'll talk a lot about it. I'll talk. I'll yeah, talk because... So many- so many bee things, but there was, there was so much like bee stuff that it, and I was just like, I don't even know what that means. So it's not like just like one bee got out. Like if the queen got out, like the colony get like the, sw- it swarms. It, it, we'll get into it anyway. Okay, so good. It's not just like, ah, like two or three bees got out. It's like bees got out. Bees got out. Okay. Because, okay. because what I, what it did say was that once they got out, there was absolutely no way they could put them back. One article I read said that it, quote, seemed like an unmitigated disaster. So, yeah. Um, And W, yeah, well, W in an article that I read said that he was convinced he was finished. He expected to be disgraced forever. And he said that women would frown and show me to children and say, that is the man who introduced the wild bee into Brazil. But why did random people know that this guy's bees got out? And why did it matter if these bees got out? Wasn't that the point? Well, that was situation one. Here's situation two. As it happened, at the same time, Brazil was ruled by a vicious military dictatorship, which Kerr very vocally opposed. So he was in deep trouble and was imprisoned in 1964 when he publicly fought government corruption. He was arrested again in 1969 for protesting a particularly hideous crime committed by the Brazilian government. Now, W talked about it in an interview, and this is the paper that I, from the paper that I translated. I'm going to read what he said in his own words, because it's obviously better than I could recap. And and just bear in mind that it is translated from Portuguese. So a a little bit of the language is clunky, but the idea comes across, okay? Here's his story, quote. 
What motivated my arrest was my protest against the torture of a Catholic nun, Mother Marina Borges, a very dear person who ran an orphanage. I was at the College of Medicine in the city where the orphanage was when I was approached by the Monsignor who asked me to do a forensic examination on Mother Marina because she was badly hurt as a result of the tortures. I said no. He needed a coroner and I was an agronomist, but I promised that the next day at my genetics class, I would do a detailed report on the violence suffered by Mother Marina. Well, the next day, 200 people showed up to my genetics class and usually there are only 108. I gave an hour of genetics and then I stated I would also deal with an issue as important to them as genetics. I then transmitted the information given to me by the Monsignor reporting the sufferings of the nun about the cowardice of torture, and I gave them the addresses where this news could be sent. I asked the listeners to divulge the occurrence of those facts as much as possible. When I left the class, there was already a police car waiting for me. They took hmm. me to the deputy for a long interrogation and released me by order of the second army command because I was that very day reelected to the Brazilian society for the advancement of science and it would resonate badly the delegate that released me warned me insistently that if i continued to criticize the government my children would suffer the consequences end quote yeah so basically a guy comes to him and says oh my gosh they really did some brutal things to this woman you've got to examine her so we can get the word out and he's like no but if you tell me the details when the actual expert does it i'll spread the word after class tomorrow so his class is packed for the next day and he tells everyone how awful the incident and to spill that tea everywhere. And he packs up for the day and the cops arrest him immediately. So because he's such a big deal in the science world there, like the, the Brazilian society for the advancement of science is like, a, it's like a Royal society. It's a really big deal in their country. And he well, was and he's also known at this point internationally. Oh yeah. 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 So like if other people in other countries and other scientific communities has gotten wind of it, other countries would have put pressure on this dictatorship that was already on thin ice apparently right. it would have been just like toss him in a dungeon somewhere and like leave him there forever because people be like where is he so mm -hmm. they had limited options on how they dealt with him exactly and so because he was just re-elected president of that society he was expected to be places he had things to do the government was like fine you can go but obviously they managed to threaten his family pretty thoroughly yeah. So we know he did have children and likely a wife. So although I couldn't find any information in English about them. So in addition to arresting him, threatening his family and all that, they managed to trash both his work and his reputation. Mm -hmm. So remember how his bees escaped? And it was it, like it wasn't like he want it wasn't something he did. Of course, there was an investigation about it because like the government was funding some of this work and governments like to investigate, blah, blah, blah. But see, that's the thing about government spending money on stuff. If they spend their money on it, they'd like to have a say. Yeah. Yeah. The government portrayed him in court, though, as kind of a Dr. Frankenstein who was bent on mayhem and destruction. And they said that W had been training his imported African bees to be, quote, killer bees that could attack humans on command, which... All of that is BS. And there's the BS, y'all. None of that is true. Not even a little. Not In like Brazil, I think they call them assassin bees. Yeah. Which sounds cool, but also not good. But not good. And well, it's like the murder hornets, you and, know? Yeah. So they're not really, but they do look very scary. But Africanized bees do not look that scary. They're, they're actually rather cute. And we're going to post a picture of them. But 
North American journalists and bureaucrats picked up that story and they picked it up the way that it was reported by the government in Brazil, that there were these killer bees and blah, 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 and totally sensationalized the whole thing. They said that, quote, thousands would die because of killer bees, but the reality was that few, if any, deaths had actually been attributed to the bees. At that point, I'll talk about time. it. There, yeah. I mean, I've got well, some stats and stuff about it, but yeah. So at that time, they were just saying, this is this has killed thousands. It, at the time, it really hadn't. That wasn't even a thing yet. So what changed? What, how did we get, from, I mean, this happened, but I told you that he's this like respected guy that's, that people remember fondly, whatever. He's remembered today as being the guy responsible for taking Brazil from 47th and worldwide honey output to 7th which is a huge, huge jump. That's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Simply put, the old government is gone. When the government changed, so did how people perceived the science that W had worked on. In fact, and maybe Brenda will touch on this, Africanized bee honey is preferred today and a lot of beekeepers like having Africanized bees. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I got, I got so much to tell you about yeah, bees. Yeah, so I, I figured you would touch on that. So, so anyway, the only thing that really changed for W is not, Anything that he did, it's just that different people were in charge, so it was perceived differently. Yeah. So W died on September 15th, 2018, a few days after his 96th birthday. And if you go to some of the sources that both Brent and I will post, there's a video of him talking about his bees mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And he's like really passionate about it. And he's really cute. Like it's, it's, it's a really cute clip that I saw. I didn't understand anything he said because I don't speak Portuguese, but it was a cool clip. And I'm glad that we used him and his work in our BS episode, because clearly W was a BA just for his science. He was also standing up to a violent dictatorship and using his scientific expertise to improve the economy and agriculture of Brazil. That's BA stuff right there. Sure. But in my opinion, and I think that once Brennan gets into the science part, the BS here is how a government can take scientific information and twist it to meet the demands of whoever happens to be in charge. Nothing about W's work changed from government to government, but the way the government reported on it is total BS. Yeah. And that is the life and times, the very short life and times of W. Kerr. All right. So yeah, so that's what I got. I think, didn't I, I feel like I read somewhere he ended up in Arizona at the end of his life, maybe? I think so. I think he was somewhere in the United States. Yeah. I think, I think that that's correct. Yes. Cause they said something about his adopted country, the United States. So yeah, yeah. So I think at some point he came up here, but I, again, I don't know when. Yeah. I don't, I don't know either. I like, I really wish, like, I really wish there was more about him that I could, that I could have translated or I had more time or I could have whatever, because I think that there is a lot more to this very interesting man's life, but this, this was the high points and the stuff that's most relevant to our podcast for today, I guess. So, yeah. So, all right, let's take a quick break. And then you have, you've been like building us up and you've been teasing the most bee centric episode of all bee podcast You're episodes. I'm going to know so much about bee. I mean, I did listen to other bee podcasts to prepare for this you're gonna know so much about bees by the time i'm done um i'm actually very excited bees are cool so break time then we'll get into it okay rena we need to take a minute to tell everybody about proton guru and the mcat ladder yeah we definitely do it's really great 
the whole idea of Proton Guru is academic accessibility. So at protonguru.com, you can find a free full organic chemistry course, a free MCAT organic course, and diversity modules related to organic chemistry. The cool new thing that just got added might be the best part though. It's called MCAT Ladder, and it's an MCAT test prep course like no other. It's prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really wanted to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how thorough it is with exceptional concept explanations and visual learning, plus questions that are challenging like real MCAT questions. The MCAT ladder is only $500. And if that's not enough, they have a scholarship program, too. So go on over to protonguru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Okay, Brenna, let's talk Apis mellifera. Is that how you say it? Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to say Apis mellifera and all the other bee stuff we need to get into. Okay. So you already let us know that we have to think about these African honeybees being in Brazil and whatever. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk a lot about that, but I actually just want to start by talking about bees, honeybees. Um, we'll talk about European. We'll talk about African. We'll talk about African eyes. Like we're mm. going to go down all the rabbit holes about bees. I'm excited. We're we yeah. going to, we are going to be actually covered in bees. Yeah. Today. I mean, you know, okay. So let's talk honeybees. Uh, I'm not an expert. I feel like now I am, but I'm sure that I'm not. And there's so much I don't know. But if you're an expert on honeybees and you're listening, uh, hit us up with your knowledge. Okay. So first I'm going to talk about bee colonies and the three types of bees within a colony. Okay. So I learned a new word researching. It's super organism, which is like a biological unit. So it's like Basically, honeybees are a super organism because it's really more about the survival of the colony as a whole rather than like one bee, right? Like an organism, if an organism exists to reproduce, well, a super organism, like the colony, like their purpose is to like reproduce. So it's like you would have a superhero and that'd be fine, but you could also have the guardians of the galaxy who all together were a superhero. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So bee colony- Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm there. Sure. Yeah. So reproduction of the colony, which is called swarming, and we'll talk about that, Mm -hmm. um, is how the honeybees survive. So small colonies of bees might contain about 20,000, while larger colonies may be upwards of like 100,000 bees. Whoa. These are colonies. Okay. Whoa. And within that colony, there is one queen bee, Mm -hmm. hundreds of drones, Mm -hmm. and thousands of worker bees. So I'm going to talk about each of those things. Okay. Okay. So let's start with the worker bees. The worker bees are all females because of course they are, because who run the world? Girls. Girls. They are. Girl bees. Apparently. Apparently. They are really the ones you most likely will encounter. Like if you are out in your garden or out by your flowers or whatever, those are probably um, just the worker, the female worker bees. Okay. Mm -hmm. They can sting because they have an instinct to protect their brood. And um, we, again, we'll talk about aggression of honeybees later, but Mm -hmm. I read this about European honeybees and it's probably the same with, you know, Africanized or African, Um, but younger workers will be the ones tending to brood in the hive. 
the middle age worker bees are the ones that build the wax comb, they guard the entrance to the colony, handle food stores within the hive and so forth. Okay. And then the old ladies are the foragers who actually are out there getting the pollen and such. Oh, wow. I mean, old's relative because like they only live five to seven weeks, I think. Oh, queen geez. can live longer, but bees t- typically live like five to seven weeks is what I read. But a queen can live like a year. So it makes me feel like the bees do live long, but I don't know. Anyway. Drones are the males of the colonies, mm-hmm. and they're pretty lazy. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> you know, yeah. just uh, they just chill during the summer, and they hang out and they eat, and they basically wait for a queen to require their services, as it were. Mm. That's mm-hmm. a good way to say it. Yeah, we'll a family friendly queen, way to say it. We'll, we'll talk about queen bees mating because I do have to talk about it here in just a second. But for the drones, uh, it's an interesting life if they do mate with a queen they oh man maybe cover the littlest one's ears from it they lose their reproductive organ and part of their abdomen afterwards oh no it all off and then they die basically oh dear yeah it's kind of a crazy way to go um i think they can survive it has been like they that's happened but Who not want very to? long uh, yeah yeah um so since all the new colonies or all colonies, bee colonies in general, have one queen, but there are hundreds of drones. Like one queen will only mate, we'll talk about how many she'll mate with, but like she's not mating with hundreds of drones. So a lot of drones will not be chosen. So what happens to these poor, and they're stingless, stingless boys. Mm -hmm. Well, when it starts getting colder, like in a European honeybee, the worker bees just kick them out of the hive so they don't take up resources. So they just die in the cold. Oh my gosh. I read something about that in the um, Portuguese translated article that W was talking about, like how, how European bees clean out their hive. And I didn't understand it because they didn't read anything else about bees. And I was like, what do you mean they clean house? Oh, they clean house, honey. Oh my house. Yeah. They're like, y'all been sitting around here all summer, eating our food, just hanging out. Now it's time for you to go. Um, Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Isn't it? Bees are, I mean, I kind of want to just like have bees now. Oh, we're definitely going to have an apiary after this. Like I really want one. Uh, My husband will probably look at me like I'm crazy, but no, it's important. We're like, no, we'll do it. I feel like we'd be doing the Lord's work. Okay. Yes. And Um, we'll call it BA honey. It's going to be great. Yeah. Um, I feel like I know a lot now and we'll, we'll get to it. I got obsessed. I went down a real big rabbit hole on YouTube with watching this one lady who like does all this bee stuff all the time. Oh my gosh, guys. Okay. So anyway, back to drones. Yes. Uh, they're, they're dead out in the cold. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I also read a few beekeeping blogs where they say that they have found dead drones outside the hive that have been stung by the workers. So I don't know if like they'll also sting them to like kill them and get rid of them or not oh it it wouldn't be surprising based on what i've read about some of the other things that happen in beehives but i don't know if they just like kick them out or like the way they kick them out is to sting them i don't know not sure not 100 sure on that but still drama and i like it so much drama okay so now we're back or we're to the queen bee and the queen bee is in charge of making more bees yep and all the other bees protect their queen okay so real quick, um, I have to have to talk about pheromones. 
Yeah. Um, I wondered if you were going to talk about pheromones. I'll talk, you know, I'll talk about them in a minute. Okay. So how does a queen bee become a queen? Mm, Yeah. This is so fascinating. Okay. So in honeybees, and this is different in other honeybees, because I'll talk about, um, you mentioned the um, indigenous people who were collecting wild honey and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those, those stingless bees are called melopona bees. And those Mm -hmm. are the ones native to Brazil. Mm -hmm. They are different. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how queens are selected or whatever, but the diet fed to the females determines whether it's a queen or a worker bee. So a standard diet of like, f- of food is like pollen and nectar and so forth. And females fed this will become worker bees. Okay. Um, and I don't think I mentioned this, but drones are bees from unfertilized eggs. So a queen can lay fertilized and unfertilized. If she, when they're unfertilized, it's a dr- it becomes a drone. Okay. If they're fertilized, it can become either a queen or, or a worker bee. Okay. Okay. Um, so queen bees have uh, special little cells within the hive and mm-hmm. they are fed or, or the bees that are going to become queens mm-hmm. with these special little cells within the hive and they're fed royal jelly royal jelly super fancy but i think it's just like a milky secretion from like the nurse worker bees gross but so i read one place that all bees do get a certain extent of this royal jelly but a rich diet of it is what basically helps the queen develop fully to reproduce got it okay it like helps her fully develop because i think i would like worker bees can lay eggs if there's not a queen like there may be like there's some reproductive capabilities but it's not it's not going to sustain a hive yeah yeah so it's it's the queen that gets all this extra I guess probably nutrients that helps her body develop fully so she can lay eggs and whatever okay Mm -hmm. I mean I just probably should have listened to more bee podcasts but I did have time well you know yeah. And then I also, I saw that Queens can live like two to three years of like the worker bees. Okay. 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 So I mentioned swarming was the way a colony basically reproduced. So let's talk about swarming while we're talking about queen bees. Okay. okay. So in a hive, you've probably got like 10 to 20 daughter Queens produced by the colony. Okay. Okay. Princesses. Sure. Yeah. But queens because there's only workers and queens and they're fed royal jelly but sure princesses okay so what happens is mama queen and about two-thirds of the adult workers from a hive travel to a location where they coalesce and then it looks all swarmy Mm -hmm. and there's a video that i'll post it's from the i was talking about this earlier the honeystead she has so many videos on youtube but she she's got her own bees and whatever anyway she shows you a swarm and she like uh shows how to collect them and anything all all that but cool um so when they swarm they send scouts out to find a new place to make a colony and the bees just like hang out there swarming around until they find a new place okay okay so back at the hive that the mama queen just left Mm -hmm. the daughter queens emerge as adults Mm -hmm. and they fight until there is one left oh my gosh cage match can you just if you would like to sing the winner takes it all at this point the this winner super- takes it all. There you go. Exactly. Thank you. Um, so yeah, they just duke it out until there's only one queen because the hive is only big enough for one queen. So if one queen emerges before her sister queens, she hunts them down and kills them. Whoa, savage. Yeah. yeah. And that's how a queen bee becomes a queen bee. 
And then of course the queen bee that left with her swarm, like she just takes over as being the queen in the next hive or whatever. And then, you know, there are things like if a queen does die, how they replace that within the hive. And then if you're a beekeeper, there's all sorts of things about replacing queens and, and queens can get rejected. There's all sorts of stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, so these queen bees, they ain't playing like, oh, yeah. So now that colony has a new queen and she hangs out till she finishes maturing. Mm -hmm. Then she leaves the hive to mate with the drones. And all this is happening within like the first two weeks of her life. Okay. And the drones are basically like drone congregation areas. It, it, it feels like a brothel. I was going to say, is it like a harem, but for dudes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Can you still Uh, call it a harem if it's dudes? I don't think so. I think that that has a different name. I don't know, Gross. but she'll take a few flights for this purpose. Hmm. Um, bees actually mate in midair. And then she just stores all of the semen of after that. that. Yep. We're just going to be um, biologically correct. Yes. Uh, and then she goes back to lay eggs. So it's like once she mates, like like those couple times that she goes out and mates, it's like she just stores it all up and then she just lays a bunch of eggs. Okay. And I guess maybe some get fertilized because she has like... I, I don't, I don't know how some get unfertilized and fertilized what, because she's already mated. But anyway, on average, I read a queen bee will mate with 12 drones. Oh, so wow. Remember so like there's, the- I, I said, there's like hundreds of drones yeah. in a hive, like in a colony at any time. So, so if you don't European get honey bees who are getting booted out of the hive, it's, it's bad times. Yeah. But you think about like how many, like that's hundreds of mouths to feed that have zero purpose. Let's oh, because they're not getting, they're not getting honey and they're not making babies. So bye. What is their point? Yeah. yeah like boys, bye. Boy, bye. Yeah. Um, and then I, I mean, I went down a lot of, lot of rabbit holes because there's <laughs> stuff about the success of a queen bee within a colony does sometimes they think it has something to do with how many mates she has and whether they reject her as a queen. And anyway, we're just living the hashtag bee life right now. Okay. Yeah. All right. So before I get specific about the bees in our story with Kerr, let me mention pheromones or let's talk about pheromones. So you have probably heard of these before. A lot of animals use these to communicate influence behavior. Humans have them. Like we all like, like most animals have pheromones. Okay. But they're chemicals produced that other animals detect and that influences like their behavior. So just to mention a few in terms of how honeybees uh, use this, the queen emits a pheromone so worker bees can detect her presence. Okay. Like how, how do, how does a colony know where the queen is? Well, she has a pheromone and they detect that. Okay. There's another pheromone that communicates the location of the colony to workers if they're displaced, which is called the Nasanov pheromone. Okay. And then there's an alarm pheromone. And that's basically where the bee, the guard bees are like, hey, there's an intruder. And then if it stings something and dies, it also releases the alarm pheromone that's like, hey, this is where I, I stung the intruder. Come here, come attack here. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So just tuck that away because we're going to get into the whole getting stung bees thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about bees in South America. Yes. So we talked a little bit about melopona bees. Both of us have, um, they're just a genus of bees that are stingless. They're native, I think to Mexico and South America, mm-hmm. and they do produce honey as well, but not in the same quantities as like the honey bees that we're talking about. So as you mentioned in Brazil, in Kerr's time, there are a lot of people who 
kind of rely on uh, these wild bees to make a living or to have honey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is, like you said, Curse is trying to make it better, make yeah. it better for people, make honey more readily available mm-hmm. and so forth. So, and I, I just, as a side note, melopona bees still exist today. Mm-hmm. There's debate on whether they're under threat from um, AH, AHBs, which is Africanized honeybees colonizing in the areas. But I think there are certain indigenous plants that only the melopona will go to for nectar, not the AHBs. Mm-hmm. So it seems like they're still able to kind of exist together, but I didn't go as much in detail on those types of bees. Okay. okay. All right, so let's talk about European honeybees in Brazil. As you mentioned, in 1834, European honeybees are brought to Brazil from Portugal, okay? Mm-hmm. These are the Apis mellifera yeah. uh, Iberianus, probably said that wrong, but like Iberian. Iberian, Iberian. yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, which they're from Portugal, okay. And, and really like we call them European honeybees. They're really like Western honeybees, but we kind of just, European honeybees gets used a lot. So all honeybees will be apis mellifera or mellifera, by the way, like the honeybee itself, right? There's apis mellifera species and all this stuff, but apis mellifera is your honeybee. Okay. So even back in 1834, they recognized that the bees, the the European bees weren't really thriving. So they brought apis mellifera ligustia over in 1880, they're Italian honeybees, okay? So they're just from Italy, uh, like they're a variation from Italy instead of the Iberian Peninsula or whatever. Okay. So this also didn't really improve anything. Um, And so by the 1950s, there are people like monks, um, I I can't remember what else, but like monks would have colonies of honey, right? They'd have their apiaries because, you know, monks got to make some money too, right? Yes. Um, So they would maybe get wax for candles, have some honey, whatever. Hmm. But, you know, Brazil was pretty far down on that list of world honey production or producers. Okay. Yeah. And really the Western honeybee is more suited to temperate climates. And so that subtropical or tropical climate in Brazil really is not ideal for them. Yeah. So they're, they survive. I mean, there, there are colonies there, but they're not thriving. Okay. So that's why Kerr's thinking, Hey, how can we make these bees more suited to the climate? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, he's, he's basically responsible for establishing the study of genetics in Brazil period. So as a geneticist, he's thinking, okay, what can we do genetically speaking to, you know, modify what we've got? Okay. Yeah. So he had Apis mellifera scutellata imported in and some queens got out and whatever. Okay. Okay. So how do we end up with these killer bees? All right. So we got to talk about the Apis mellifera scutellata. So that's the subspecies brought over to Brazil from Africa. So this particular subspecies lives in the East African lowland. Mm -hmm. So they would be uh, like acclimated to those warmer tropical temperatures. Mm -hmm. So I did read a little bit about this subspecies on its own before it got introduced into Brazil. Sounds like it was weird. It's like, they're not great honey producers or they're not known to be great honey producers. Whereas Eastern or European honeybees are, they're really good honey producers. Okay. But then I've also read places where, well, because like 
that, that they'll step up their honey production. Well, well, we'll get into it. We'll get into it anyway. So possibly not great honey producers, and they are known to be more aggressive, quote unquote aggressive. It's more of like defensive, if you mm-hmm. like. Um, Ethiopia in 2019, I looked, was 10th in terms of honey production, but Ethiopia is not Eastern lowland. So I'm guessing there's probably a different subspecies of bee up there, but I don't know. I didn't yeah, investigate. That's, that's probably right? true. This is Eastern lowland, yeah. lowland Africa. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the advantage with these types, this type of bee is, again, they would have the ability to survive in the conditions, temperatures, right? Yeah. So because they're more defensive, um, that's why I read there, that would indicate that they might have a honey, a higher honey production. Like if they know something or someone's going to take away their honey, they'll make more like in response to that they're defensive. They, okay. they know they need their resources. Okay. Okay. But they also tend to abscond, which is leaving the hive and swarm more frequently which can affect how much pollen and nectar they would store. And this absconding Mm. and swarming is different from a reproductive swarm where you leave the baby queens at the hive and go start another one. So if a swarm absconds, the whole hive just like is like, peace out, we're done with this hive. Wow. So they're not doing it to reproduce. They just leave. Okay. Okay. And a lot of times this type of swarming, a lot of times this type of swarming is related to predatory threats, fires, excessive cold, rain entering, like they built their nest and realized like, oh, we, we're getting rained on all the time. Okay. Um, or if there's like a food or a resource source shortage. Okay. okay. So in example, for example, in Brazil, absconding rates have been close to 80% during the wet season Ooh. when there's relatively little flowering. Cause it's like winter, but it's just wet, you yeah. know? European honeybees don't abscond like this because they store up a lot of honey to make it through the winter, right? Like they are more detailed, careful about their resources. That's why they kick their boys to the curb Mm -hmm. when winter comes in because they're, when they're used to that seasonal change, but they also kind of account for that. Whereas African honeybees don't really do that because you don't have the seasonal change. You'll have a rainy season maybe, but like, it's just a different I don't know. It's just a different genetic makeup in terms of how they kind of go about that. Okay. Okay. So, and I read that absconding swarms can travel like as many as a hundred miles maybe to find a better area to make a nest. Wow. Yeah. And they'll build nests differently. So like European honeybees, like they want to have the nice, totally enclosed hive, like not African honeybees, they're like, eh, this is good enough. Half of it's like hanging out of the tree. Tr- they don't care. Oh my so gosh. Have- okay. So uh, listen, African, African bees, if you would have built a nicer hive, maybe you wouldn't have to ditch it. Uh, right. I mean, that's how it would like, that's why they would get water in the hive too much. So they didn't like build it carefully. Right. <sighs> so that's, that seems to indicate, or, or I think is why it's like, well, they're not going to be as good a honey producer because if they do tend to abscond more, they don't, they're not going to store up as much resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not going to, their, their instinct won't be to store up more because they're just like, yeah, just leave. We'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. Um, so these are the bees, these, um, the African honeybees. These are the bees that Warwick Kerr was studying in Brazil for use in terms of breeding a better honeybee who would have that improved ability to thrive in the temperatures. 
And so these bees got out and they mixed with the European honeybees. So they, they can, they can breed together mm-hmm. because they're all apis mellifera, mellifera, right? Yeah. right? Like, I don't think they, I don't know, but they can breed together. Right. So now we have Africanized honeybees, AHBs. Okay. okay. And there was, I mean, there's a spate of killer bee movies in the 60s mm. and 70s, right? And that helped like further propagate the idea that these bees are horribly deadly. And I mean, look, we talked about murder hornets, right? Right. So, you know, um, so AHBs are actually a little bit, so Africanized honeybees are actually a little bit smaller than European honeybees, mm-hmm. but most of us probably couldn't tell the difference. And I won't go down that much into it, but there are different ways to determine like the percentage of African honeybee genes in a honeybee. So scientists can study kind of what's going on in the colonies, how much of those genes or genetic materials carrying over. And, um, wow. Basically. Yeah. I mean, you, you can identify genetic makeup of these honeybees. Okay. Okay. And a lot of bee hybrids today have a lot more genetic material from AHBs than from EHBs. Okay, where the Africanized honeybees are dominant. We'll talk kind of how where they are, because like people up in Maine don't have Africanized honeybees. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are they actually killer? Well, they can be. Uh, uh, they are, can be. Puns are fun. I'm surprised that it took us this long to get into the episode before we had a bee pun. Yeah. We probably should have had a lot more. Poor I feel like that was our part. Yeah. I feel like that was yeah, a nice right. opportunity. All right. Yeah. All right. But here's the deal. So they knew that the scutellata was more aggressive, was a more aggressive or a defensive type of bee, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas European honeybees rarely sting and they have to be pretty provoked. Like if you are out in your garden and you are just doing your thing and you got a bunch of honeybees buzzing around getting their nectar and pollen or whatever, they don't care. Like they're not likely like if you encounter a European honeybee forager, they're, they're not really going to attack you. Um, you'd right. probably have to be like right at their hive, really directly threatening, whatever. Um, and even then, like, so this lady, I don't know what kind of bees, I, I don't know where she lives. So maybe they're all European, but I mean, she's like all up in there and they don't care. Okay. Um, also more Africanized honeybees will attack a perceived threat to the hive and will chase you up to a quarter of a mile from the colony. Oh, I'm not going to run a quarter of a mile. Yeah. So they must have really, I mean, that's gotta be really strong pheromones to go find that hive again. If they go half quarter of a mile away. Yikes. So essentially what kills a person or what also can happen. And I think it's, I don't know if it's more common, but it seems like likely a dog or livestock or Mm -hmm. like another animal who kind of gets their nose in the wrong place or whatever is basically an excess of stings, like, Mm. um, 10 times more stings than if European honeybees attacked you. It's the same venom. Like it's not more deadly. Like the venom that they have is not Mm -hmm. any more deadly. You just get a lot more of it. So I read another study where they tested reaction time to a stimulus and for AHBs, it was one to five seconds response time. Whereas for the European honeybees, it was like 10 seconds or longer. So it's like a, that's a big difference in reaction. So time. Africanized honeybees have a hair trigger. Yes. So, and then the average number of stings on a piece of leather set out, like when they did that was 80 stings for African honeybee, Africanized honeybees and 10 from European 
Okay. So that's actually eightfold, but you know. Wow. But that's a big difference. A big difference. Right. And then another study put a leather ball in front of a nest. Okay. And in front of the Africanized honeybee nest, I got an average of 61 stings and the experimenter got 49 stings on the leather glove that they were wearing in about a minute. Oh, wow. Within a minute, there's like a hundred stings. Okay. And compare that to 26 stings in the ball and none on the glove from the European honeybees. Oh, I just okay. thought those are really interesting in terms of just like comparing like what we're, what we mean by, you know, defensive or whatever, like they're much faster to respond and way more of them are like, okay, cool. Let me attack too. Okay. Right. And here's why I think that is they build crappy hives, right? So there's like, we didn't even work that hard on this. Don't mess it up. It's not that good. And we know it go away because meanwhile, the, because meanwhile, the European bees are like, we build a fortress. Good luck with that. It's a citadel. Yeah. Um, so even if you aren't allergic to bees, you, you know, if you get, uh, you know, hun- look, colonies can have, what did I tell you? Like up to a hundred thousand bees. I don't okay? want a hundred thousand bee stings. Not necessarily all of them and the drones can't sting you, but I mean, True you'd still, that's a lot of stings that you could potentially encounter. Mm -hmm. So you get inflammation of your skin, dizziness, headaches, weakness, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, sometimes an increased heart rate, respiratory distress, renal failure, even. Yeah. Are we back to nephrons? Yeah. I didn't go down that rabbit hole this time, strangely. (laughs) Um, But but they're adjacent to it. Yeah. So I read that today one or two people die per year from killer bees or these Africanized honeybees. Oh. Um, but that number was higher back when they first became dominant in bee populations, mostly because people didn't know how to manage them. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as an estimate, I read probably around a thousand humans total have died from Africanized honeybees. Like ever? Yeah. Since, since 50, whatever, when Kerr when this whole thing went down. Okay. I like, but like, I and I'm pretty that. sure like 700 of those were like within the first couple of years. And then it just like, they, they figure out what to do kind of thing. But like in recent years, so I saw stories, there's a 73 year old in Southern Georgia, somehow mm-hmm. a swarm got up there in mm-hmm. 2010, he died. A uh, 62 year old was killed in 2013 in Texas from a swarm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's some from more recent years, but you don't really see it too much on news stories, but again, it's, you know, one or two probably per year. Okay. All that being said, our reality is that Africanized honeybees are here to stay. As you said, it's, it's, you can't put them back. No. You can't undo what you just did. Right. Okay. My daughter watches a show and like one of the songs is like, you can't untoast the toast. Okay. We can't yes. untoast the toast. You can't untoast the bees. You can't untoast the bees. Okay. Something else that differs between the European honeybees and the Scutellata subspecies is that the EHBs have slower life cycles and produce less drones. And basically in terms of colony reproduction, it's very different. So an example, a single colony in French Guiana produced between six and 12 swarms a year. And then if you include all those swarms, offspring colonies, you basically get like 60 colonies that can start from one within a year, right? Okay, yeah. And that's maybe extreme. And I think they found it on average, it was more like a 16 fold increase, but still it's a lot of colonies. 
Yeah. European honeybees, on the other hand, are maybe doing one to four swarms per year compared to six to 12. And so it kind of ends up being maybe like a threefold increase overall in population. So if you're trying to, if you've got a, like when this all started going down, right? If you've got these European colonies, they're going to be much slower to reproduce. So that's why the Africanized honeybee kind of really took over Mm -hmm. is because they abscond more, they swarm more, they, right? There's just a lot more going on in terms of them reproducing their colony, okay? Got it. So, um, which is a big difference, right? Also, because they produce way more drones, okay? Drones are the dudes, right? right? And if virgin queens from feral or managed colonies are flying around in Brazil looking for a mate, they're probably more likely to encounter feral AHB drones because mm. there's more of them, Yeah. right? So I think that's kind of what pushed and propagated the Africanization of the honeybees in Brazil is because mm-hmm. and kind of South America, because they'll talk, they spread. Um, but you just have a lot of colonies, you have a lot of drones. So in case you didn't know, when you have an apiary, it's not like they can't get out, right? Like they have to be able to get out to pollinate. So they also can get out and mate with whatever they encounter. Yeah. So if your European colony gets out and finds a big hangout of Africanized dudes, drones, that guess what? Guess what your worker bees are going to be genetically made up of, right? So I think that helps them continue to thrive and mm-hmm. not For just sure. survive. For sure. Um, so within something like 10 years, Africanized honeybees uh, are becoming the main honeybee in Brazil. And that's when they made that big jump to number seven in terms of honey producers. Wow. So, you know, he did kind of succeed in some ways, I guess, in producing a better bee to thrive in the climate. Obviously not without its ill effects. And initially a lot of beekeepers quit because it was just too difficult to deal with these aggressive bees. They just didn't understand how to deal with them. Okay. Okay. But it has rebounded a a lot, especially in Brazil. And as you mentioned too, I read too, that they are kind of like the preferred bee for most beekeepers in South America. Yeah. They they, and they want that Africanized stock because it's a hardier breed for that area and, Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And so there were a lot of efforts that went into trying to select better Africanized stock or hybrid Mm -hmm. stock, developing management strategies. Um, You know, I read in an article from 1992 that was like, well, this is great because Brazil had the resources to do all this, but other countries in South America didn't necessarily. So honey production decreased much more for some of those other countries in South America because they just didn't know kind of how to deal with it. Okay. Um, And so that brings me to, Africanized honeybees didn't just stay in Brazil and they've actually, they are in the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, you can find these, one of my resources I'm sure has it, but um, I think it's the Clemson home and garden info center, but there's mm-hmm. a map showing kind of their migration through the years um, up our way towards oh, cool. the States. So they moved through the Amazon basin in like the 1970s. They were found in the early eighties in Central America and Mexico. Uh, I think Mexico was like 1985. And then they started finding them. Um, think maybe that same year they found them in California, but the California colony started because some bees hitched a ride in an oil drilling pipe that came into the country from South America. Um, oh. They were also, a, yeah, like they were, that's how they got into California got in it. that case. I mean, they can migrate obviously because yeah. that's really how they spread, but 
that particular one they traced it to it came out of a, a pipe that had come in from south Af- uh, south america wow um they were identified in 1990 in texas and arizona not too long after that i think at this point it's like california new mexico arizona southern utah texas florida and maybe even louisiana well, and then we have that case of the Georgia man, the Southern, Southern Georgia man that died mm-hmm. um, who found a colony, but that might be an isolated colony again, kind of like the California one. I don't think they really expect that they'll spread or thrive much further North because again, they're more suited for tropical climate, not the seasonal changes. Um, so if they tried to make their way up, um, they just wouldn't have very good success because they don't know how to store for the winter, right? Like if they came up for, came up into Michigan, mm-hmm. they don't, the winter comes and they're like, oh crap, like what do we do? And, and because they abscond so much, they'd be like, oh, it's October 12th. Let me abscond here. And then, you know, the next day it's snowing. They're like, oh crap, you know? So I mean, yeah. like they just, they don't have the same, um, I don't know, just the way that they've, they are, they're not going to build a hive and they're not going to get all cozy for the winter and everything else the way European honeybees do. So probably if you're too far North, you don't have to worry about this. I have read. No, someone told me this actually, cause we have, we had a carpenter bee problem in our deck. Okay. Um, I, they told me that carpenter bees hibernate like oh. other, other animals that hibernate do. Mm-hmm. Do we know if European or Africanized honeybees hibernate? I would think that the European ones would have to because it gets cold. But like, as you said, up up north, up in Michigan, the upper Midwest, the Dakotas, whatever, you have a killing frost. Yeah. So are, so there's no way that an Africanized honeybee is going to survive a killing frost because they're I mean, not prepared I don't, I don't think to hibernate. So. So well, again, I don't, I don't think, so. I mean, I guess like if you had an Africanized honeybee, like if you, cause you, you can buy and there are places where you can go to ensure that you're getting a European honeybee queen. Like mm-hmm. you can requeen your colonies. If you're a beekeeper, like mm-hmm. you sometimes have to requeen and stuff like that. But, okay. um, I mean, I suppose if you like got an Africanized honeybee queen and brought them into North Dakota, Um, I mean, she would mate with the bees there, but I would, I would, I would just like natural selection. Yep. I think, yeah, I just think natural selection over time, it'd just be like, well, any of that genetic material just is not very good. Or maybe the hives would reject because, because, you know, I I don't, again, not a bee expert. So, so if anyone out there who listens is a bee expert, first of all, do European bees, honeybees hibernate first of all second is a killing frost going to kill africanized honeybees because they don't hibernate making it unlikely that they will come further north than kind of like the southern united states or you know could you transplant a colony up to north dakota and it would do fine until winter came or would it learn to hibernate would it adapt because it has european bee stock that it's breeding with so many questions about this i know but anyway, See, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm equally as fascinated as you, as you are. I spent so much time and I still, yeah, I don't know. I don't know some of these things. So as far as management strategies go, um, for a while, uh, they did try 
quarantines. We all know what that means. Yeah. Um, so it, we're all familiar with quarantines. But in the 90s, they were trying to implement quarantines in areas in Texas where AHBs were detected. Mm-hmm. That it was kind of controversial because you need bee colonies for pollination. And if your quarantine zone increases and then you have less colonies available for pollination, then that's bad. And there's yeah. just, I mean, right. Okay. So I don't know how much of that's actually used or implemented today. It got mentioned um, in that article in 1992 that I, from 1992 that I read. Um, but at some point, at least it was a manage- management strategy. Um, mandatory requeening is actually another way to manage colonies in Africanized zones. So you would get a new queen that's certified as a European honeybee, and that helps keep the Africanized influence out of managed hives. Um, so oh, like if, okay. you, if you're in Texas and you have an apiary, you could, again, you could just requeen with your certified European honeybee queen. Okay. Mm-hmm to again, keep, help keep that Africanized influence out of your hives. Got right? it. If you happen to be in that area, I won't think you can do this in Brazil because they're just everywhere. They're right? everywhere. Mm-hmm. But if you were like kind of in an area, I don't know, like, let's say they start making their way more into Louisiana and the Louisiana beekeepers are like, uh Oh, they could do some of this mandatory re- or not mandatory, but they could choose maybe to do some requeening to kind of help keep the stock or the genetics as they are. Okay. I think is also good for beekeepers and their insurance issues, because if they show that they've like made an attempt to avoid Africanized honeybees in their colony, then they're like doing due diligence. I don't know what you call it, but basically like, you know, if, if you're managing hives that are like killer bees and that stings somebody and they get really sick or something, right. Like insurance purposes, yes. I think it's also helpful for them to make sure that they're trying to continue European honeybee lines mm-hmm. in their managed colonies. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And so there are, I mean, how do you get these Queens? There's breeding programs, place to raise them. Um, you, you know, you could raise them in like Europe or Canada or someplace they definitely don't live. And so I think that's kind of the reality. It's like you, you know, people in Canada know that they're raising European honeybees or whatever, and they can ship it to you wherever you are in the United States, or I don't know how bee shipping works, but apparently you can get there. Your hands. Oh yeah. I have so many questions about well, I mean, bee shipping. Kerr got, shipped out. Kerr got a bunch of bees from Africa. So I don't know how bee transportation works. So if you're do a they bee make transporter. Them, do they make them sleepy? Know. Like, do they just like, cause smoke makes them, you well, know? Yeah. So, so one of the management strategies and what they learn in Brazil, when they started dealing with these more defensive bees is that, yeah, you've got to, you've got to kind of smoke them, smoke them to kind of calm it down mm-hmm. so that you can go in there and do what you need to do. Yeah. But then also too, you know, you can limit where managed, like in Brazil um, and a lot of South American countries, they have requirements about like how far you have to keep because there, their managed colonies, their apiaries are going to be Africanized, right? Yes. But there's rules about how far to keep the colonies from roads, from other fields, homes. Um, Like if there's, you know, cows grazing, you can't keep your bees. I mean, not that they can't travel, but again, you're you know, a cattle rancher's cows are less likely to encounter them if you've made sure there's distance or um, you have to have like some kind of vegetation barrier or fence to kind of keep them out of different areas. So again, they've done things to deal with the fact that these bees tend to be more aggressive, Mm -hmm. but now they're a pretty good honey producer. So in 2019, so I found this like list from 2019 
Brazil was still num- uh, number 11 in terms of top honey produ- producers in the world. Nice. Um, so I guess things turned out okay-ish from Kerr's little whoopsie doodle, you know? Yeah, feels like it's okay-ish. Yeah, yeah okay-ish. And honestly, um, you know, most of us in the United States, except for, you know, the, the southernest ones, have to, or, you know, don't have to really worry too much about it. Okay, but can we be honest? I feel like Africanized honeybees are not the scariest bug that most people in the South are encountering. I mean, there's a lot of really gross bugs in the South. Yeah, because hello, killing frost. That is why I live in the North. The only reason that I put up with snow is because my bugs don't get bigger than about an inch long because they all die. Yeah, it's true. We don't, we don't get those as much below nope. the Mason-Dixon line. You don't. So Yeah. So yeah, um, that is kind of a brief, well, it wasn't that brief, but there's a lot of information there about bees. I never mentioned the the melopona. So one of the interesting things Kurt did, because he studied these melopona bees, they actually, it has to do with their genes, their um, dominant recessive genes that determine queens. So like if it's an X, it's like big X, little X, Mm -hmm. it'll be, I think those are the queens. If it's like big X, big X, like two dominant genes, then those are the workers, I think is what I saw. I don't remember now. Like, so is it like, I don't have, I don't have those notes in front of me and I wrote it down at one point, but it, for the melopona bees, it actually has to do with dominant and recessive genes. Whereas for honeybees, it's like, did you feed them enough royal jelly? So it's a very different way in which they get queen bees. That's amazing. Like, so it's yeah. like a second and, fig- and he figured that out. Oh my gosh. That's that, that is amazing to me. Cause you, when you think of sex linked genetic traits, you think of like the first thing I think of in humans is hemophilia, right? That is a sex linked genetic trait. So what you're telling me is that bees have the same kind of thing, except it's not hemophilia. It's queenness. Yeah. So cool. And he figured that out. So really cool stuff and Kurt figured that out. And, um, you know, he did all kinds of stuff. I mean, you said he had like 600 and some, a stupid amount of papers, but yes. you know, he looked at, um, I think he, I think he studied those melopona bees quite a lot because, um, I saw at least one paper that was like, um, something about kind of like the communicate sound communication for the stingless bees. Like, wow. We've ever heard about like the honeybees dancing or yeah. like in that, in the uh, Honeysted video, she got all excited because their their butts were all up in the air because that was like their part of their dance. Yes. Like everything's good because our butts are in there, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so he did stuff with that and just you know ton, tons of research with these things. But yeah, awesome. That's honeybees. That's I got honeybees. a lot to say in terms of kind of the, his legacy, the BS, the implications, yeah. or whatever. But. Now we all know a ton more about honeybees. And if you don't want to get your own apiary in your backyard right this second, then something's wrong with you. Something is like, I want, I want my own honey. I want it so bad. Oh my gosh. I mean, ever since elementary, the show, you know, yeah, with Johnny Lee, what's his face? Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause he had his bees on the roof. Yeah, on the roof. Like yeah, I know. In New York. I'm like bees are so cool. And he felt really strongly about bees and got all sad. And I mean, cause there's a lot of things like there's colony collapse disorder. Oh yeah. So Africanized honeybees, they're also less susceptible to a lot of those diseases. 
Oh, that's so they're huge. less susceptible to colony collapse disorder. And oh, there's a couple other ones. Um, maybe, maybe I wrote it down. I have to look. Uh, chalk brood mm. um, is another common thing that they're less susceptible to. So again, you have a lot of maybe not as positive things like the aggressiveness of these bees, but they're, you know, more resistant to some of the diseases that can wipe out colonies, which is another reason I think that like you find more and more genetic material of the Africanized honeybees. That's how natural selection works. Right. So yeah. So anyway, yeah. Bees. Very cool. Bees. So cool. Yeah. So let's get into, let's take a break and then let's get into his legacy. And why did we talk about this in our BS episode? Because I know you're all right. This is you're, you're all probably reeling out there in podcast land. Like why did they even talk about this guy? He's totally chill and this, you know, seems solid. We'll talk about it. So let's talk about what kind of BS we're really dealing with this week. Because in our last BS episode, there was a dude who used really good science in a really evil way. Joseph Mengele, yeah. if you missed it. It wasn't even good science. It started, I mean, anthropology. Anthropology and genetics are good. You know, that's pretty solid science, but he used those. Okay. Yeah. W just like wanted to make bees better. And he did accidentally kind of because they got out, but you know. So what's, what's weird to me. So it's like, how do we come up with these people? It's like, well, you type like bad science or something like that. Right. And then his name comes up and like, oh, he's the guy that's responsible for killer bees. Mm -hmm. So initially we were like, oh man, what is this guy doing? Like making these bees that are going to be stinging and being like, when you just do a cursory search of him and you just kind of like see a headline of like, oh, he made killer bees. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. But then you actually see all the facts and you're like, wow, uh, it's a very different story than what you felt like, again, for what I thought I was getting into too. I start looking at his work and I'm like, this, this doesn't, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not that bad. bad. This is yeah. bad. Where's, where's the BS? Well, yeah. and then, and until I got to, until I got to how the government treated him, right. That was, yeah. that was the BS. Right. Well, I'm like this, so that, so here's my spiel on it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, he introduced a subspecies that has a tendency to be more aggressive. Okay. But there are benefits as we've talked about that, like now Africanized honeybees do produce a pretty good amount of honey for Brazil and they are less susceptible to bad stuff like colony collapse disorder and different types of diseases that can affect colonies. Um, and if you pay attention to the world of bees, I think this was even an elementary, like CCD is a, a big problem for bee survival. Mm-hmm. Like y'all, like it is not good if colonies just like colony collapse disorders are what you think it is, right? Like yeah. you don't, you don't want this. You need bees, you need to pollinate things, right? But you need them. So one of the podcasts I listened to had a guy named Dr. Robert Page, and he was interesting because I guess he's a bee behaviorist. Um, and he's interested in trying to breed traits into bees to make them more viably or viable commercially, make them more gentle to handle and so forth. So, I mean, people are doing now the Mm -hmm. same kind of thing, Mm -hmm. right. That like Kerr had the idea for it just, maybe we know more, our technology is very different. I think Mm -hmm. they can do artificial insemination now with bees. I think, um, the Western honeybee was actually the third insect to have its genome mapped 
And if you're mapping genomes and trying to understand all that and whatever, looking to breed, uh, breed traits into bees, mm-hmm. you know, we do start heading towards the idea of genetically modified animals. Yeah. Um, and stay with me here. Cause I want to make this point. People are doing research on genetically modified animals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Genetically modified animals are generally not allowed to be used for like consumption. Okay. Dolly, the sheep and the clone, like stuff yes. like that. You can't eat that. Okay. Right. But I think there have been cases where they've been on the market because I read something about some salmon. Uh, it's 2017, a group called GM Salmon that grew, uh, or sorry, I don't know what the group was called. They created genetically modified salmon and they grew to maturity in half the time as normal salmon. Whoa. So the idea of like, if you can get them to grow bigger, faster, right? You have more food in a shorter amount of time. Sure. And for some reason, I think I saw that that like might've started to get to the market and then it was like, no, but anyway, I mean, that was as recent as what, a couple of years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to get into really all the ethics and all the other things that go into it, but I mean, mm-hmm. we're, people are doing this today. Right. Um, in Florida, they've used genetic modification to get rid of mosquitoes that are responsible for things like Zika and whatnot. Right. Um, that one, I'm pretty sure I don't, this is just off the top of my head because I remember hearing about this. So I could be wrong on this. You'd have to look it up, but I think it's like you modify something in the male mosquitoes so that their offspring are really weak and can't survive. So it's like, you want the males to continue to breed with healthy females until all the offspring are just weak and they just die Mm -hmm. before they can reproduce kind of like, I guess, like massive birth control for the population. Yeah. And to me, I don't have a problem with them wanting to do this because it's, it's a specific type of mosquito that carries things like Zika. If they would like to get rid of those nasty looking ones that cause Zika and some of the other awful diseases, I don't feel that sad for the mosquitoes about this. Right. Right. I mean, there is a delicate balance in an ecosystem and you can't like totally take them out of food. Right. I mean, there's things there, but again, there's always some kind of, there's more that goes into it. Right. But anyway, my whole point is like, if you, even if you don't want to go as far as gene modification, I mean, people have been selectively breeding all kinds of animals for like forever. Like it's called husbandry. Yeah. If you're breeding a racehorse, you take a mare with a really good lineage of fast horses and a stallion who's a really fast stallion and has had 8,000 people or horses in his past that were fat, right? Mm -hmm. And you make a baby hoping that one's really fast. So, I mean, it's not the the science that he was doing, there's nothing wrong with it. There was nothing crazy about it. Like Mm -hmm. none of what he did. And it's just, it sucks that like, even for me, when I first looked it up, I was like, oh, this guy's an idiot. What is he doing making killer bees? Because it just comes off that way. And that's mm-hmm. like the, I don't know, this is, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Anyway, it's a, no, but it is a clickbait moment because we were looking for a BS for this season and we wanted something different than, than yeah. we had done the first season with Mengala. And you did find Kerr and you were like, oh, how about the guy that did killer bees? And I was like, oh yeah, that'll be a good one. Killer bees. Ugh, blah. And I was yeah. like, oh, wait a minute. They're not actually killer bees. They're Africanized honeybees and their honey is actually pretty decent. And down in Brazil, they're actually doing okay for themselves. And what, why are we doing right. this guy? And so right. I, I mean, I understand why my, by both of our research 
pieces went in very different directions than we thought they would, because yeah. I was expecting to hear about a guy who was a Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. And he was doing weird experiments and he came mm -hmm. with these bees and then he released them into the wild and it was this mm -hmm. horrible thing. It was, it was yeah. a series of unfortunate events and all yeah. very well-intentioned that led to this. So really kind of turned out okay. And it kind of turned out okay. I mean, there are pluses and minuses, but again, as you said, we have been hybridizing or selectively breed. We do it with plants all the time. Right. I want to get a rose with a very specific color of pink. So I'm going to need the pollen from this rose over here and this rose right. over here to make another baby flower. That's just a thing we've been doing right. since forever. Or why do people pay thousands of dollars for a golden doodle? Because right. someone very carefully, selectively bred a poodle and a golden retriever to make golden doodles or whatever. I mean, right, right. Like, so, so there is no a, one thinks those people are awful. Right. No one, no one was like, oh, the guy that gave us golden doodles, he's the worst. Like literally no one has ever said that. Everyone wants to give that guy yeah. trophies and whatever, because everyone adorable puppies, right? Because they're yeah. cute. Right. So yeah. I think, I think part of what works against Kerr is that people are afraid of bees. Right. And, and I, you, you don't, I mean, I don't love them. I'm about to love them because I really do think we should start our own apiary, but I mean, I mean, you know, but if you respect them, they don't mess with you. They're not like hornets. Okay. They're not like yeah. wasps though. They're mean. Those are mean. Those bugs are mean, but honeybees really just are trying to do their job, pollinate the world. And if you leave them alone, they will mostly leave you alone. So they're not, I mean, I know they're not adorable and fuzzy, and I don't know, honeybees are kind of cute. Honestly, okay. The when picture, I was the picture that honeys. I found of the Africanized honeybee that I'm going to yeah. post, it's like one of the cutest ones, I thought. The, when I was watching the honeystead and she was like trying to get the queen and she like pointed her out, I was like, oh, she's so cute. Like, I don't know anything, but I could tell that it was the queen. And I was like, oh, what a cute little bee. And I was like, these are so cute. I don't know. It was, yeah. It's so, and I'll be honest. Some like there are times when I'll see a flying yellow and blackish striped thing, and I'm like, oh my gosh, is that like a like? Because I am more afraid of wasps or yes. or whatever. Like those do scare me because they're mean and they'll sting you. They will attack I, you. But when I'm at my butterfly, like I'll go to the mail to check. I got a, a butterfly bush right mm -hmm. at my mailbox, mm -hmm. and it will be covered in like 30 bees at any given mm -hmm. time, like in the spring and summer, mm -hmm. and I love it. I never worry about going down mm -hmm. there and grabbing my mail because I'm like, I know that those are the bees or I figure they're the bees. I don't know what wasps do. Don't they eat insects and stuff? They're mean. They I don't know. They're mean. And, and not, not like, I know that someone out there is like wasps are the coolest thing ever. If you're an entomologist I mean, and you love wasps, right. okay, fine. But wasps, no, they're no, they'll stay. But if I don't know, if I can't identify what the flying thing is, I will be more concerned that it will sting me because I'm not sure but now that I've had to look at pictures of honeybees for days on days on days, I'm like, I could totally tell you what a honeybee looks like, at least mm -hmm. like that one I'm good on or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, but people are afraid of it. And yes, die. Yes, you can die from a killer bee swarm attacking you. Right. Mm -hmm. But if the stat of one to two deaths a year really is kind of where we're at, it's it's tragic. It's awful. But if you compare that, just give you one one thing to compare in the U.S. alone, I read there are 30 to 50 fatalities a year from dog bites and, and attacks. And no one, and most people are not, again, we're, we're ready to just like pay bazillions of dollars for golden right. doodles. Right. 
So, I mean, yeah, like people, I mean, yes, some people have fears and some people are worried about dog biting them, which is fair. I get it. That phobias are a real thing. Like trauma. You had a, you were traumatized by a dog when you were little, but you know, but it was, but I mean, so you compare that though, everyone, everyone has a dog, right. Or every, like a lot of people in the United States have dogs and they don't worry about it or think about it, but then, Ooh, killer bees, you know, I don't know. So, no, I think, I think that you're exactly right about that. So I think that we can agree that the science here, I mean, yes, hybridizing selective breeding can edge into dangerous biomedical ethical areas. Sure. Sure. But in, in, in the way that he was doing it in this case, there's no BS here. So I really think the BS has to do with the smear campaign that the government at the time that Kerr was doing this, they're the ones who did it. They're the ones who made him a villain, even though he really isn't. Yeah. And and it's not the first time we see the government getting involved in science and it causing problems. Like we talked about with Linus Pauling. Yep. Yep. Right. I mean, he wasn't allowed to freaking go to a conference because they thought he was a commie and they took his passport from him. Right. I mean, the so reason it, Linus Pauling's name isn't on the double helix, right? Is because of, I, I lay that, that at the, conference. I lay that, that conference I lay that at the feet. Yeah. I lay that at the feet of the FBI. That is their right? fault. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so, and, and, but in Nazi Germany too, they were involved in quote unquote science as we right. learned the last one. So right. I'm, I'm seeing a trend here in that, yeah. you know, but, and that, but that's, that's the case with any government, government entities that are paying for science have a vested interest. And mm-hmm. there are people who are not as ethical perhaps as others. And all they care about is continuing to be funded. And right. so they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. They're not going to publish scientific data that's going to make their patron, the government, look bad. People do it all the, I mean, Shakespeare did it. The Mm -hmm. reason that Richard III has such a bad reputation has a lot to do with Shakespeare. And it's not because anything he wrote was necessarily as true as he made it sound or happened the way that it did, but he he knew- I can't take off. I cannot make Elizabeth- Elizabeth the first angry. And so he like, he knew who was paying his bills. Mm-hmm. So if the, if it, like in the case of Kerr, the government wanted him to do this, he was getting funding from this government that was not a good government and he ticked him off and yeah. then he was the enemy. So I think that's, a, I think that's a good lesson in general for the scientific community though, that you be careful where your funding comes from. And for those and of us not to say it doesn't happen in private sector, but you're less likely to have something like what happened to Kerr happen to you because like, you know, one millionaire who gave you money is mad at you, right? One millionaire who like, gave you money probably isn't going to have you arrested immediately if you tick him right. off. Whereas the government owns the police, right. the government is the police and they're coming after you. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's sure. what our cautionary tale is this time. It's that it happens like across the board, but when you get the government involved, then they have a larger means with which to come after you if they're make, happy yeah. with anything. Yeah. Right. And so for those of us who are not in science, those of us who are looking at science that's happening, which I actually put myself more into that category because I don't do my own research. I'm not like, no, 
believe me, the government is not funding this podcast. So, I mean, we, we kind of do our own thing, but you know, I'm more in the private sector when I'm seeing science happening, something that I need to remind myself to do is to look at the source who Mm -hmm. is funding that study that TMZ wants you to click on or whatever, whatever their clickbait is on, you know, whatever the the homepage that you're looking at. Uh, TMZ is not the one that I look at, by the way, it was just a clickbaity example. Um, So, well, here's a pretty benign example. I went to a dentist and was getting interrogated about the kind of drinking water that I drank. Like, do you drink bottled water or tap water or whatever? And I go, well, you know, I probably drink a lot. Mostly now I drink filtered water from the refrigerator, but sometimes I drink bottled water or whatever. And what brand? I'm like, oh, I don't know, Aquafina or something. Oh, well. And so the dentist, well, the dental assistant produces this chart for me mm-hmm. and it's the pH scale. And it's talking about <laughs> oh, how- time out. She doesn't know you're a chemist, is she? No, she didn't know until after I got this lecture, which was funny because she told me certain bottles of water are more acidy. She said acidy. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. If I if I'm you, see, this is why we're different because I would have been like, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm just going to stop you right there. <laughs> but she hands me this this thing, and it's like. Aquafina's pH is four, which is stupid because guys like soda, it has a pH of four and yeah. three, three and four, like Coca-Cola would have a pH of three or whatever water. It's just, what are you putting in there that would make it pH four, you know? So, but it's like this list of like where all these different like brands are. And then there's, there's someone like better over on the alkaline side. Okay. So I, I think I threw it out, but I was telling one of my coworkers about it. We were laughing. So I Googled to try to find if I could find this image that they had given to me. Mm-hmm. This image was put out by a company who made alkaline water. So that's so, so they of course they're going to tell you that acidic water is bad for you. And all these other bottled waters have a lower pH. We tested, we had a bottle of Aquafina in my office and I'm, I'm a chemist and we have pH paper in the labs right. down the hall. So we're like, let's just get a pH. We just like, let's prove it to ourselves. And it was like a six or something like that. Which is but, what you would expect because water, which is, expect, which is fine. Yeah. But it was just, here's a dentist office who's not paying attention to this graphic that they pulled from the internet. That's put out by a company that is promoting alkaline water as being like the best thing for you. And, you know, like, so when you say question the source, well, the source of this paper, this graph or figure, whatever you want to call it, it's not all up. On, it, it, just be careful, people. Don't right. just take everything right. as it is. You know, even at a dentist's office where they're, they're trying to be helpful. They're trying to make sure you're not ruining your teeth by drinking all sorts of awful things, right? They're not trying to be harmful in right. any way, but they're also giving you information that's like a hundred percent, just like, it's not true. Like, right aquafina waters and have a pH of three you know what I mean no, right so yeah so yeah I think and I think that that is a good benign example because again in in the case of Kerr it, it was kind of just as benign as that he made bees and they got out and he just yeah. wanted to make the honey production better but the information that got out was oh, look what happened. Well, they were ticked off at him. Like, so if you do any of your research on who is the source of the information that you're getting, what was the original science that was happening and who paid for that study? You have to think about all those things when you're assessing, is this science BS? Yeah. Because people will say, scientists say, 
which scientists? So here at BA in Science, we encourage all of you as part of being BAs yourselves to just question the source and to look into where the money is coming from because as we know, I didn't, it never even occurred to me that the reason that we would have something called killer bees is because a violent dictatorship got ticked off at a scientist right. who was trying to help the country. I right. never, I never would have thought that, but it's something that you really have to consider because as we know, it's not the only time it's happened in history right. and it doesn't even just happen in the government. It can happen in your everyday life. So, yeah. so that's our, that's our, the, the thrust of our BS episode. Check those sources. Yeah. Speaking of sources. Speaking of. Let's talk about our sources. Oh, man. A bunch, uh, which as as usual, will be up on our social media. But um, I did, like I mentioned, there's a there's a podcast called Beekeeping Today podcast. So mm-hmm. I listened to parts of two of those episodes. Nice. Um, one of them was actually on Dr. Warwick Kerr's passing and his Africanized honeybee legacy. Okay. Um, so that was kind of an interesting one. If you're, if you need another, if you need something to hold you over between this episode and next week's episode, mm. you can, you know, check out Beekeeping Today's podcast. Or if you've decided to become your own amateur apiast, apiast uh, maybe that would also help you. I don't know. Um, Warwick Kerr, 1922 to 2018, creator of Killer Bees or Better Bees. That was in the American Bee Journal, November 2018. So we're not the only ones that have been like, hey, maybe he wasn't that bad, just to point that out. Yes. Um, Bad Beekeeping Blog. I think you use that one too. Mm-hmm. And then I have kind of like a lot of, I have some resource or references towards the end of mine that are just kind of about like genetically modified organisms and mm-hmm. some of that thing as well. Since I kind of touched on that here um, mm-hmm. recently, I've read another paper, the biology and management of Africanized honeybees, which was in the annual review of entomology. That one, that was, was that one was my 1992 article that mm-hmm. had a lot of the management strategies and stuff like that. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, among other things, but and and random websites and random things about like what happens when the bees reject the queen and you know stuff like that because again lots of rabbit holes, lots of rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. I also use Bad Beekeeping Blog and I used um, Wikipedia for like a source for sources. So there was a uh, blue at bluetoad.com. There was an article that they had written when. Uh, when uh, work her past and he and in that episode it linked me to this Portuguese article from this journal so the journal is put out by the university that he was working at at the time and so they had this publication that they interviewed him for and so the the article is called work her the Amazon the Indians and the bees and it was about what the bees meant to the indigenous people in Brazil and how the things that he did with the bees, whatever. But that's where it got into how did everything get interrupted because you ticked off the government there. That was how I got to that spot. So it was, it was probably 16 pages of stuff about bees in the Amazon and the way that the government, the current government that he was living under at the time, because it was from 2005, it was from the way that the government at the time he was doing this article was 
dealing with scientists and dealing with funding and how they were preserving the Amazon and making sure that because he he was very big into conservation in the Amazon and that kind of thing. So that article, again, I translated it from Portuguese. You can look it up. You won't be able to read it. But um, that was kind of my big my big source material for this episode. So, yeah. All right. So I think that's our that's the end of our BS. Yeah. For this season. I've already picked our one for next season and it's again, very different from good. Yeah. It's, it's good. There's a lot of, cause again, when you Google, when you put in and Google, right. Bad science get a lot of different, let's go a lot of different directions. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, let's tease next week. You okay. have a teaser. I'm excited for, I'm ex- Yeah. Oh yeah. I definitely have one. Um, I'm excited for next week. Me too. I think it's going to be fun. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm just excited about it. I'm excited about it for a lot of reasons, but my teaser is, I'm going to read this dramatically. Oh yes. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche. <laughs> will you do the Fandango? Okay. If anybody do, like, and if doesn't see, guess, if that's anybody, a good one. That's a good one. So if you have a guess, email us, put it on Facebook, message us something. We will now shout you out to get a shout out. Now is your time. You are going to get a shout out. There is no reason why you cannot get it from that. Cause it's a perfect teaser. It is the perfect teaser. In fact, I was trying to figure out how I could work that into the title for next week's episode. So we'll, we'll have a little conference on that because I was doing Mm -hmm. the same thing. It's like, I really need to use this. So yeah, Mm -hmm. next week going to be super fun. You don't want to miss it. We might go a little, we might be a little bit towards the longer side next week. I'm thinking, but as Brenna pointed out, when I mentioned that to her, we've had some shorter episodes lately. You're welcome. So Yeah, you'll just go on the whole journey with us next week. We got that was basically my plug for her to not edit out too much of my stuff for, you know, for how long over time I'll probably go. I was just trying to buy myself, you know, maybe like 10 less minutes of cut material. Which is fine because, I mean, it does take me time to yeah. cut. I'm listening to it either way. So, you know, if you talk for two hours, I won't even That's listen true. to the last 45 minutes. I'm just going to snip it right off there at one hour 15. Yeah. I mean, the sound <laughs> editor will, who is me. So. Yes. So that's what we got coming up next week. And we are approaching the end of the season, but we're going to go through right until about Christmas time. And then we'll come back in the spring. So yeah, yeah, we're all working on all that stuff, but uh, I think that's all I've got for the week. Yeah. Just make sure you hit us up. If you know what next week's episode is going to be about, so you can get your shout out. Yes. Cause we 100% will shout you out. Yeah. So, all right, then until next week, Live dangerously, do science.